All right, welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast on which we talk to high achievers about their goals. I'm Kristen Guile, and with me today is Dr. Jen Welter. Give a wave, an audio wave. <laughs> she, she is the NFL's first female coach. She is the founder of Grid Iron Girls. Uh, she was the first female coach in Madden, the first female running back in men's professional football. She is an author, and to top it all off, she has her PhD. Hey, Dr. Jen, how are you? Hi, uh, I am doing well. I, I would I would rather be out in the world, like running around and doing stuff. But since we are, you know, we are on pause, as I like to say, um, I am so glad to be here with you because, hey, I like people who got goals. We love goals. We're obsessed with them. Um, and I'm going to ask you questions about goals here soon. But why don't uh, you share your story in your own words for our listeners? Um, tell us a little bit about how you grew up, uh, your background with sports, and how you've managed to turn professional sports careers into so many different offshoots. Right. Um, one of um, a recent article on me said, you know, it was funny. They said the resilient Jen Welter because it's like, you know, there's turning so many things that people would think would be losses into wins, and I'm like. Well, that's really funny because when you're used to doing things that no one else has done, like it's not like the traditional path. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important on like, um, we got goals because, you know, as a, as a PhD in biology and my master's is in sports psychology, one of the things that we talk about extensively is like goal setting, right? Mm -hmm. And yet I've looked at my own life and I'm like, I don't fit right? Like I don't fit in the big giant goal and then work backwards, right? In those all achievable steps that add up to these big things, right? Like I've taught it. I have brought people through it. I've written about it. And yet I make no sense. Um, you know, like certain things do, right? Like obviously college, a PhD, right? We, we may say we're going to do it in four years, we get industry and do it in three, but it's coursework. And, you know, those things fit in, in the big measurable goals. And yet in my life, most of the things have not allowed for that because when you're the first, right, or you're leading the way, if you're like me, I never saw myself in those positions, right? Like I never saw myself, um, coaching in the NFL. So it wasn't like I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do to become a coach in the NFL, right? And yet for me, instead, leading from the front means that your mentality has to be, be prepared for, you know, to be the best and to step into situations. And then my challenge to myself is to step up to every challenge, right? And I think that that mentality is what has given me so many offshoots, mm -hmm. right? Because it wasn't necessarily just one thing that I set out to say, this is what success looks like, right? And work backwards from there. So, you know, there's a clear delineation of success and failure. Whereas instead, my challenge is always like, okay, how can you be unique and valuable in each of the situations that you might go into, and then where can your experiences lead from there? So for anybody who might feel overwhelmed by the world, 
right? Which is right now, which is everyone. And it's me too, right? Like I, I said that to someone the other day. I'm like, you know, I was really good in the beginning, right? Because yeah. to me, it was measurable, right? They said two weeks, which meant to me probably two months because everybody didn't do it at the same time. So I kind of had like two months set in my mind. And with two months to work back from, I was like, okay, I'm going to do all this stuff, right? Like I Venetian plastered my, my new place and, you know, kind of had these things. And I lost like kind of my momentum when all of a sudden we went back to, um, back to zero. Right. And so things are tough right now and it's unpredictable. And so what we all have to do is challenge ourselves to find micro wins, right? And to focus on what's in our control and to find places where we can help because those things are all under our control in a world that is freaking weird, okay? And, and, and that to anybody right now who feels like the big goals are tough, they are, right? But the deck of the world is being reshuffled. And in fact, it's really even more than that. It's not, um, it's not like, you know, we were all playing the same games for a long time with the same deck, right? Like we might've played go fish. We might've played spades. We might've played poker, but we were all playing with the same deck of cards. Mm -hmm. Well, the world has taken that deck of cards, thrown it up in the air. And you know what happens when cards go up in the air. Some are under the couch, never to be recovered. So the deck is not the same. And what we have to do is become really creative, really innovative, and really resilient in how we are going to invent new games and not worry about the cards that we don't get back, okay? So for me in my life, that's kind of been a theme. Um, and, and motivation in that, for all of you motivated people, I get this question all the time, right? And if you've got goals, that means you're motivated, right? And people always say, like, how did you never quit? Well, first of all, I may have quit like five times in a day, but I also quit at quitting, right? Like, it was like, okay, well, what are you going to do then, right? You can have a day off. You can have a bad day. Some days you're going to feel like you are capable of running a marathon. Other days you will leap tall buildings in a single bound. And some days the very best that you have is shuffling in slippers. Yeah, But even a day shuffling in slippers is so valuable because you may have needed that recovery and you may have needed to refocus. And so don't feel like that motivation has to be constant for you to be a success. Um, it's just a matter sometimes of allowing yourself to grieve. It's allowing yourself to refocus. It's allowing yourself to reset. It's allowing yourself to go to the freaking beach, right? So don't feel like those things have to be constant and don't feel like, you know, the time that you maybe figured out what you didn't want to do was wasted time, right? Because when you realize what you're not, you also get much better at what you are. And I, and I think that those are things that have been really powerful in my life because a lot of the times I say like the highlights, which, you know, are the things that you read off, Everybody knows the highlight reel of my life, right? It's, it's been well-documented, um, but not in a documentary, which we have to work on that. Not yet. But uh, we have not done a documentary or a movie. Those are two things on my bucket list, 
which actually explained why I moved to LA, but then the world shut down. So then that becomes tough, but we'll get we'll back. We'll come back to those future goals. Cause I want to hear more about that for sure. Future goals. But yeah. so for those of you, um, I want to say that the low light reel has taught me way more about getting to the highlight reel than a lot of things. Um, as a kid, okay, first of all, you listed like the big things that I've done. Um, and those big things tend to make people think that first of all, I am like larger than life, really big, like six feet something. And you know, all of those things, which is really not the case. Um, no, I looked up your stats. You're five, two, five, two. I did and, my research. <laughs> yes. And you are absolutely correct. And hence the reason why I have a Chihuahua because he also doesn't realize he's small, right? Like in my mind, I am XXL, but in my body, I am, you know, I still can wear youth clothes. It's, it's, you know, it's a youth XXL at best. Um, and, and that I think framed a lot of my mentality because a lot of what I've always heard is what I couldn't, shouldn't, and wouldn't do, right? You're too small for this. Obviously not many people jumped up and said like at five foot two, I would be one of the best football players in the world one day, right? So there was a lot of things that people said weren't possible that I couldn't possibly listen to, right? Like, so the people in speaking to them, what I learned, and this is, I think, one of the most powerful lessons that we have to fortify ourselves with when we've got big goals um, is if, if someone tells you you're crazy, number one, you're probably on the right track, right? That fine line between brilliance and insanity, um, I, I, have, I have jumped from side to side and actually um, I think I've blurred the lines because there are days when I am crazy brilliant right? Like, and, and both are really important, but the people who tell you what's not possible, they're often speaking from the scar tissue of their own heart, right? From their own pain, from their own experience. And they're trying to keep you from the pain of that scar. But what they don't realize is that they're not living your life and they're not seeing necessarily what you see. Because if a lot of people saw what you saw, they would have already done what you're doing, right? So realize that people speaking in that, a lot of the times they're doing it from their own pain, but they don't necessarily have all the answers. And there are certain people who have experienced more pain and trauma in their life, and they really may have your best interest at heart, but what they can't see is your heart, right? And heart is the one thing that can't be quantified and should never be counted out. Because if I would have listened to the people who told me all of the things I wouldn't do, then they would have been right because I would have let them be right. And I would have let them determine what I chose to do. So um, that little person's mentality, I, I, I still play and fight like I'm an underdog because in my mind I am right. Like um, I have been, counted out countless times and I'm still counting on, you know, doing more things that people will count out. So that small person's mentality um, played in very early in my life. When I was a kid, my first love was tennis. And 
I actually was ranked in Florida. The highest was 50. I thought I was going to be a pro tennis player. I really did. That was it. I was on courts six, seven hours a day and um, got to the point where I was, you know, going to that next coach who was supposed to take you to the next level. And he told me because of my size and my build, I was wasting my time. And I could never be strong enough to play pro tennis. Now, at that point, admittedly, I was not yet at my top height of five foot two. Um, however, you know, um, I, I tell that story all the time and especially to kids because, you know, I, I, I would love to go back and thank that coach because maybe he was right. Maybe I could never be strong enough to play pro tennis. Um, I grew up and played pro football instead, right? Like <laughs> you went a little harder. I went a little harder, but what happened at that point is I, I though I did not throw my racket down and quit that day. Um, I think it's really hard when somebody says what's not possible because you know, this kid who was finding excuses to find her way to the court every day started finding reasons why something else was more important because yeah. if it's not possible, then maybe I'm wasting my time. But what I also did is, you know, decided that I never wanted somebody else to be able to tell me that I wasn't strong enough again. Um, and that is where I started lifting weights. So before a lot of girls were in the gym, in fact, I was like the only one, you know, at 14, I was in there lifting weights. And, you know, that became a part of my life that obviously made me one of, you know, the strongest and best players in the world. So, you know, something good did come out of it. I also found that I really loved team sports um, because I didn't have to be all of the answers in and of myself, right? Like I may not have been strong enough to be the number one tennis player in the world, but I could be one of the answers to a team question. Right. And, and I didn't have to be all of that by myself. So I really found that I love team sports, ended up playing pretty much all of them. Um, you know, I played volleyball until everybody else got tall. Um, I played softball um, and was, you know, a great softball player because I had phenomenal hand-eye coordination from tennis. Um, I was a two year in a row captain of my high school soccer team. So really found that I was a great team player and that I had the ability to push other people from how hard I played. Right. And like, I had this relentless, like fierce, you know, competitive nature. Um, and I was kind of a natural leader and I, I always did it like through humor. Um, and so I really found my place to be, you know, six foot 10 on a team because yeah. we were all better together than maybe I was apart. Um, when I went to college, you know, I was from a small town and I, I was in the first graduating class of my high school, um, which was something I did because I thought it would be cool to be in the first graduating class. Um, the problem with that was, and, and I didn't know this at the time, is that none of the colleges knew what the track record of your school looked like. So though I was the valedictorian with weighted grades, um, it really hurt me when I was applying to college. Um, I wanted to go to Stanford, didn't get in, 
wanted to go to Brown, didn't get in. Um, funny, I've gone and spoken at some of these schools now. Um, but, um, you know, it, I, I didn't get in um, to most of the schools I applied to. Uh, Boston College was actually my safety school. Don't tell them that. They'd probably be really upset. Um, and yet I got in there um, and I got in their business school. So um, the choice kind of came down to Claremont McKinnon um, out in California or Boston College. And I chose BC, though I could have played soccer at Claremont. Um, I chose BC for the academics. And it was a great decision because I found rugby at Boston College. And I had never seen rugby before, right? Like, and yet as a girl who grew up in Vero Beach, Florida and had fallen in love with football, but was told girls don't do that. Mm-hmm. And you know, football was the first place in the world that I really found that there were different things that girls could do and boys could do. Right. So that's probably why I'm still obsessed with football to this day. Cause it was the first place that they told me like, girls don't do that. Um, but when I got to college and found rugby, it was like, Oh my goodness, this is the most amazing thing in the world. It's like soccer meets football and they don't play pad with, and they don't even wear pads and they get to tackle. And I was so in, so hooked, so in love. I played all four years um, at BC. I was a prop, which yet again, um, really small, about half the size of everybody I was going up against, um, but learned to be a great tackler and got recruited for the under 23 national team. Um, at that point, I think they realized how small I was uh, for the first time, because though I was told I was um, one of the best props there, she said, at this level, I can teach other people to do what you do, but I can't double your size. So I didn't make the U.S. national team. Um, I was crushed because I had thought, like, I had finally found my way back to sports because I always believed I was going to be a pro athlete. I always believed I had this epic sports destiny. And now I have not made it yet again. And, um, you know, I was playing flag football on weekends and teaching aerobics before and after my real job, um, which I've only really done once in my life. I just want you to know. Um, I, I, I definitely... Um, I was working as a headhunter and I actually told my mom, I felt like I was dying a little each day. Yeah. Yeah. There had to be something else for me. I just did not feel like this was the life I was supposed to live. And so I was playing flag football and um, the general manager for a team called the mass mutiny called and asked the flag league if they had any girls there who were playing flag that they thought could play tackle. Full disclosure, coming from rugby, I had never really gotten that whole flag thing down. I think I was still playing tackle. So they were probably like, please take her. Um, You know, get her out of here. Save the rest of the league from her. Yeah, yeah. And I was definitely the one that, like, would play on the guys' team when they were short, you know. Um, And I I was a mess, right? Like, I I really was still tackling. Um, And so... I got this tryout for the mass mutiny and I was terrified. I, I remember thinking like, this is this, you know, it's kind of like that guy that um, you had a crush on, right? Like, 
and he was this amazing guy and you're like he's so cute and he's so wonderful and will he ever notice me and then he finally does and you're like wait you you want to go out with me and then it's like oh my gosh what if he's a bad kisser right or like what if he has sweaty palms and he tries to hold my hand like what if this dream that i have held out for is really a bad day and what if i don't make it and i remember just being so scared that i would be so close to the love of my life and not make it and i tell this story to people because it's so easy to get that voice of fear and to let that voice of fear take away what could actually be our greatest moment and so you know i tell this to people because I really struggled. I really had this tryout. And then it was like, well, what if I don't make it? And I remember that voice being so strong that I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I shouldn't go. And what I finally came up with was I could live with being too small, right? I'd been too small my whole life. But what I couldn't live with was wondering for the rest of my life, what would happen if I would have just tried out for that football team. Mm -hmm. And I say that as somebody who went on to be an eight or nine time pro bowler, you know, a two time gold medalist, a four time Super Bowl champion, and then someone who, you know, made history in men's pro football several times. I could have been wondering what would have happened to it. And, and I, and I give that to all of you because you will not get 100 of the things that you don't go for, right? It, it, it will not happen. And rejection is scary. It, it is scary. Trust me, I've been rejected more times than I've made history. I promise you that. But it's so easy to be the one who doesn't get something because you don't go for it. And and if you take nothing else from me today, take that because, you know, I, I do crazy things, right? I still do crazy things and some of them fail miserably, right? And then like, you know, you, you face plant, right? Like you really do. But what I hope is that we fail forward, right? Then I don't face plant the exact same way that I did the last time because then that's learning. Right, because in football, what we learn is you're gonna get hit, you're gonna get knocked down, you're gonna make bad plays, but when you do, right, you get back up and you do it with attitude. It's not a question of if you're gonna hit the ground, you will, it's the game. But when you get back up, how are you gonna do it? And, and I'm so thankful for football for that, right? And also betting on yourself. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't gamble. Not in the ways that a lot of people do. I don't play the lottery, you know, except for maybe once in a while. Right. I don't think that that's the way I'm going to be successful, but what I will do is bet on me mm -hmm. because I know me. That's the one entity that is, is proven. Right. And if I, if I bet on myself and I don't win, that's okay. But if I don't bet on me, who is going to, yeah. right? And anytime you're you're developing something, that's what it is, right? Doing this podcast, you bet on yourself. Yeah. Right? You said, I'm going to put my energy into me because 
I know, I know me. And I would rather build something or put that inner energy into something that's uniquely me than what, you know, be average. Okay. I can be average too, right? Sometimes we have to have a side hustle and a dream hustle. And then the goal is that the side hustle becomes the work hustle too, right? But football for me as a woman, there was no, there was no big goal, right? And this is hard. Let me pause you because I, I want to make sure that I ask the questions that we ask everyone who comes on our podcast. And I think you're, you're dancing around it, but, okay. um, I want to ask it. So we ask everyone who comes on the show, what's a big goal that you've had in the past? Why was it important to you? And how did you get there? So I think you were just about to hit something like that. So continue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a big goal that I had in the past um, was was definitely to get my PhD. And this is why, because football is what everybody knows, right? But when there was no place for a woman in the game, I had to figure out where I could become a unique value proposition to the sport, right? If playing wasn't gonna do it in and of itself, which I've got news for you guys, though I have Super Bowl rings, I don't have Super Bowl money, because the most money I ever made as a woman in football was a dollar a game. Okay. Yikes. So yeah. So playing football wasn't able to be like my full-time hustle. There was, there was no way. Right. But here I am one of the best in the world. So how do you take that practical experience? Right. And put it somewhere, right. How could I put it to use? Because it wasn't like, you know, it, it wasn't anywhere in women's football at that point that there was a financial way that it could be my job, right? So what I decided was, you know, and it was first a master's in sports psychology. That was the first thing I saw is like, you know, because I, I told you that that real job didn't work, yeah. right? It didn't work for me. I, I, I was not meant for the nine to five sit here and, and sell things. Yeah. I was good at it, but it just, it didn't do it for me. It sucked out joy. It sounds like sucked out every minute of joy. And so I had gone back to my roots. Like I first got certified to teach aerobics when I was 18. Um, and I felt like I was cheating the system because I was getting paid to work out. Right. Um, and that became my part-time job, even through playing football. So my money hustle was personal training and teaching aerobics. Okay. But what I figured out is why I was good at those things was because I was really good at working with people. And I liked the human, I I like to say I like human puzzles, right? So I was good at the motivation and I was good at understanding people and helping them get to where they wanted to go. So what I decided is that if I took the mental part of that, right, and I studied that, then that would be more expansive because I wasn't necessarily, you know, better at bicep curls than other people, but why were my people getting results? It was because of the mental aspects, right? It was helping people figure out that and the relationship with my clients. So I thought, hmm, I'm able to do things in football that a lot of people aren't, not because of God-given physical talent for certain, right? I wasn't just built to be a great football player. But there was something in my motor, in my motivation, 
that was really special and made me a great teammate. And the same thing was going on in my professional life, both in aerobics and training. And I had never even realized that there was something called sports psychology. Gotta tell you, didn't even know the field existed. But I started looking around for what would this mental part be? And I found sports psychology and I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is the missing piece of the equation. And then I start looking for schools, which I'm in Boston at the time, and they have more schools per capita than anybody. And there was only one program. And funny enough, it was at BU and I was a BC grad. So, oh, oh. But the sports psychology program was within coaching. And here's me, and I go, oh, I don't want to be a coach. Oh, gosh. Like, I have no desire to be a coach. I don't want to do that, right? Completely would not study sports psychology within a coaching department because I didn't want to be a coach. And I wanted sports psychology in psychology. So I found this online program, which at that point, virtual was like virtually unheard of. Um, and you know, now I look and I was like, wow, wasn't I pioneering something else? Cause now we're all virtual. Yeah, um, now you're an old pro. Right now I'm an old pro. Um, and so I started studying sports psychology online, quickly figured out that, you know, once I got my master's in sports psychology, that there were no careers just with a master's in sports psychology. You really need a PhD. They want a PhD. Um, and yet it really shaped me. So I get my master's. And I was working with clients, right? Um, and I was getting all these football players referred to me who were going through like combine training and stuff. And I realized I, that was a blind spot for me because we didn't have that in women's football, right? I knew a lot about football, but I didn't know about the evaluation process for players. So I took a football scouting and general management course. Again, not because I wanted to be a football scout or a general manager because women didn't do that, right? Like that was not an option. The, the straight football career was not an option. Meanwhile, I'm doing all the things that, you know, probably would make me great at it, but I didn't see that big goal. I just want y'all to know, I did not see it, but I was doing all the things that would make me good at the journey, right? And so I took this football scouting and general management course with sports management worldwide. They had never had a girl before. The president of sports management worldwide calls me. I was like, I always knew we'd get a girl. Great. But a very curious thing happened. I learned about this test called the Wonderlick, which is an intelligence test that the NFL uses to help determine who will be successful in the NFL. Now, meanwhile, I have a master's degree in sports psychology, and I've never heard of this test. And this test is actually causing conflicts in the way that people are being evaluated on this score, and there's no research supporting it. So I become obsessed with this test. Um, and then when I go back, I get my you know football scouting and general management course, become obsessed with the Wonderlick, decide I'm going to go back and get my PhD. And my dissertation then becomes the, on the NFL's use of the Wonderlick in player selection, right? So all of these crazy dots connect by naturally, like, really being curious about being great in football. And so here's me. I'm on bus trips to away games. And I am literally, like, 
typing papers as other people are just like hanging out and studying their playbooks. I'm like writing on the NFL's use of the wonder, like in player selection, you know, balancing my laptop on the worst bus as possible. Because remember, if we're getting paid a dollar a game, we're certainly not on first class buses. And my friends are absolutely calling me crazy. They're like, Walter, what are you going to be like a football playing doctor? And I was like, yeah, pretty much. Like I just put my head into things, right? Like I'm a linebacker. I just put my head into things. And my life for a very long time was work by day, play football by night and go to school by very late night. And in 2013, um, it was a crazy year. I, I got to play on the U.S. national team for the second time, win my second gold medal, and become Dr. Jen Welter. And so that was, that was the big goal, and it's still one of the ones that I'm most proud of because it was actually something that I could set as a goal, right? But remember, I don't want to coach, and I don't, I don't really actually want to write scouting reports or evaluate players. I just want to understand the process so that I can advise these players but definitely came full circle um, in my life. And it was actually my PhD that really stood out to Bruce Arians and opened the door to going to the Cardinals um, because he really thought I would have insight to offer the players that they weren't necessarily getting um, from just football people, quote unquote. Yeah. And then, so your writing skills didn't end there because you've just come out with a book series. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. So I actually have written, well, I've written a bunch of books now, but I have four books that are published now. Um, The first one, if you guys liked the life story and you can get more of it that we won't cover probably, um, that book is called Play Big. So this was like my journey. This was the first author story. And this was also a big goal. Um, And I will tell you, it got turned down by every publisher um, because they all said women in football doesn't sell. And How is that I, right. Well, I would kind of tell them, I'm like, Hey, well, pretty sure I'm the first. So how many times have you tried? Yeah. No one else would have your story. That's right. But you know, when They're things, lost. right. When things haven't been done before, it's, it's really pretty hard sometimes to convince them, um, that it'll work. So again, like if somebody's not calling you crazy, if they're not getting in your way, you're probably not setting your sights high enough, okay? So just let you guys know, because people always assume, they're like, oh, Jen, that must have been easy. I'm like, it doesn't get easier, right? Your challenges get bigger, right? Like once you go higher, you see bigger challenges to tackle. And that is really what we're talking about now. Um, You know, the world shuts down, right? I'm literally driving across country to the place that I had just bought in LA. I get here the day LA shuts down. My furniture was caught in coronavirus purgatory longer than Noah was on the ark. Yeah. So I'm here in a place. It's me, my chihuahua, uh, the chair that I'm sitting in, which the previous owner had left this like clear chair and a table and my laptop. And I'm stuck, right? Like I can't get anything. Like we're all in quarantine. And I was talking to my good friend, Brooke Foley, and we're talking as we're driving across country. And she's telling me about how the boys are driving her nuts. 
right? Like they're stuck inside. Her son Danny is nine. It's like nine, 10, 11 year old boys, their group. And all the moms are going crazy because the boys just have tons of energy and they're stuck inside. And I was like, oh, don't worry about the boys. Um, I can take care of them. We're, we don't want anybody to spend money. We don't know how long we're going to be stuck inside. Tell them to get some painter's tape. We'll do agility ladders um, on their floor and I'll take them through workouts, right? I, and literally this was how I could help my friends, right? And give them an hour break, basically. We did like three hours a week and help with the boys. Um, and in the process, I realized all the adults were so busy adulting, looking up at these big real world problems, who was looking for the kids, right? And I had a background in play and art therapy and drawing therapy because my mom was an artist. Um, Brooke actually has a background in art therapy as well. But like I always used kind of um, play therapy to break through to some of my young sports psychology clients because these are hard to talk about. And so I started thinking about like, who is going to talk to the kids about this stuff, right? Like this is tough. And so I'm voice texting Brooke through my phone because I'm driving across country and I did it in like three days because I knew things were going to shut down. And I didn't want to stop anywhere because it was weird, right? Like the world is shutting down and there's this virus everywhere and nobody knows. And like, you know, I would like stop and sleep at like a rest area when I got tired because I didn't really want to get out. Like I was like freaked out. And so I drove across country really fast, but my mind was racing and I'm voice texting like Critter Fitter and like all these rhymes to Brooke and she owns a branding agency, right? And so she's like, Jen, you know, this is really good, right? Like we could do this. And I'm like, really? Like really good? And she's like, yeah. And so we start going down the path of what then became the first book, which is Critter Fitter with Busy Bee, an adventure in movement. And this one was dealing with the first problem of kids are stuck inside, right? Like they're bouncing off the walls and the parents are stuck inside too. So I had, like I told you, I was in fitness forever and was an aerobics director at a camp for overweight kids one summer. And you want to talk about a challenge, like how do you get those kids to move, right? Like, and how do you get them to like it? So I had started doing all these silly animal-based exercises and that's what this was. The kids were stuck inside, so Busy sees the kids and then Busy literally tells them like animal challenges, right? Like Busy is like, you know, I see all these ideas from all the critters I see. So that's where the name Critter Fitter came from, right? Is we're using critters to get kids fitter, right? And they get to move and, you know, hop like a bunny or do all that stuff. And then, you know, she's like, this is really good. And she tells me later, she's like, you do know I'm the wrong person to casually run ideas by because I brand things for a living. So everyone does it. And it's really hard to tell your friends, like, maybe not so much, or that's really nice. Tell me how that goes. She's like, for me to jump on something, you know, it's really good. And I was like, wow. Okay. Right. And you know, she is a multi-award winning creative director. So I couldn't have, you know, just casually flung ideas to a better person. Right. And so, and we're going through this together and we're experiencing how weird everything is. So then there's me. And like I told you, 
right? I, oh, and I had a mattress on, I had like a blow up mattress, right? So it's me and my chihuahua and weird world. And like, I am telling you what, my poor chihuahua Tyson was getting so sick of me because I'm alone, right? Like I would just pick him up and I'd be like hugging him and I'd be like, come here bug, right? Cause he's got these big bug eyes. And so I wrote this story when a ladybug can't hug, which became book two. And so Tyson became a ladybug because Chihuahua is hard to rhyme with. And I did not think that these two things fit together. At that point, they were so separate, right? Like, you know, Critter Fitter is physical fitness. Using critters, get kids fitter. And Brooke goes, well, we can move kids in more ways than just physically. And I was like, duh. Literally, it was like light bulb moment. Um, book drop like, instead of mic drop. <laughs> like, like, book drop. And it was, we can move them through motion and emotion. So busy became our, you know, our physical fitness bead leader. And ladybug is our emotional bug. And this book to me is so special because I think every person in the world has had this moment. What is it? Like, look at Ladybug. Have you not felt this way during the pandemic? For the listeners, Ladybug does not look happy. She looks no. lonely. Oh, I thought we were on video too. We are, uh, but this will be an audio too. <laughs> we do both. We're on a Zoom call. Listeners, I'm sorry. I was showing you. Um, I will. So Ladybug, um, I, I was like showing on camera like you guys could see it. So It'll I'll be on I'll, YouTube too, but this will oh, be on okay. iTunes as well. So we hit all the media. So we are sort of there, but for if you, um, ladybug is the saddest looking ladybug in the world because her whole world was running around and hugging her bug friends. And then of course a snail comes with the mail and it tells everybody that there is a virus hopping from bug to bug really quick and bugs can pass it without even feeling sick. And so so to defeat the virus, everybody has to stay inside. And Ladybug's like, ugh, what good is a Ladybug who can't hug? And she's very sad because she can't see her friends. And I know I have felt like Ladybug more times than I could count. Um, but then she creatively problem solves on how she can connect with her friends through the heart while still staying six feet apart. Oh, um, that sounds so sweet. And yes. I, I want to give the ladybug a hug. That's yes. adorable. It, it is a sweet, sweet book. Um, and it really is the it's it's a book written to help facilitate those conversations. Mm -hmm. Right. Because and it's it's drawn in a way, if you didn't see it, like this is part of the brilliance of what Brooke brought to this is they're all drawn so that kids will naturally see that they could draw these things, right? It's not polished art that looks like it should be in a museum. Like it is illustrated in a way that a kid's like, oh, I could see myself in that story, right? Because we want them to be like, oh my gosh, have you ever felt like Ladybug? And they're like, mm-hmm, I need a hug. Because these are hard, big emotions that what happens is the kids absorb all of it, right? They feel this and yet they don't necessarily know how to express it. And for young kids, they internalize things, right? The example I always give in, you know, for people is 
Think about a kid who has experienced parents getting divorced. What do they do? Mom, dad, please, like, I'll make my bed. I'll be better, right? Like, they think it's their fault. So we don't want them to think that all of the weird stuff in the world right now is their fault. And we want to be able to facilitate conversations about the tough things that are going on right now so that they can understand that it's not their fault and that there is a solution. And so I think I've written like 11 of these books so far, but one book leapfrogged. Um, those two, those were the first two and they were done. And then I was writing backstories on like Ladybug and you know, how she met Spider. Character and all development. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was watching the press conferences that Governor Cuomo did on a regular basis. And, you know, for me, he was just a, a great mix. I mean, and he's reaching me from across the country, right? Like I don't even have furniture. Um, and I don't know what's going on. And I am a half the country away from all of my friends, right? Like it, it really was isolating. And when I would watch his press conferences, he would give information, but there was also humanity, right? Like, and he was making the case for masks. And I don't know if he said it word for word, because I think, I thought he did. Like in my mind, he said it and I wrote it down. Um, but it was, you know, the case for wearing a mask was not just to protect me, but to protect you. And I was like, oh. And in my mind, I wrote down like, wearing a mask says I love you. And I wrote it down and I was like, that's the book. And I stayed up for like, you know, those like benders, almost like creative benders. This was one of mine. And I, I was like, how do I go through like giving the mask a hero story because it's weird. It doesn't make sense to wear a mask for kids. Traditionally, a mask would be a villain, right? The mask is the bad guy. It's a bandit. It's a bank robber. You know, unless it's Halloween, we don't do masks. And how do we make it not only, you know, normal, but a proactive and positive things for kids to do, right? Like, and, and if we do that, then kids can be some of the best movers for us, right? Like think about that kid that, and I know my niece and nephew do this for me, like that learned that you wear a seatbelt, try and get in the car and not wear a seatbelt. Auntie Jenny, you need to put on your seatbelt. And I wanted kids to feel like that about being a part of the solution to defeat the invisible enemy, COVID-19. Right. And so this book goes through all of the CDC guidelines and makes them really approachable so kids can be a proactive part of the solution. And so like we go through things like asymptomatic transmission. Right. Tough concept. Adults are still not getting this. But if I tell you the virus hops from bug to bug very quick and bugs can pass it without even feeling sick then you know you're not looking for like a zombie, right? Like it is a, it is like, oh, okay. That's asymptomatic transmission, done, no problem, okay? Viruses in soap don't get along. Soap shows the virus, it doesn't belong. So we wash our hands, wings, and other bug things, right? Like 
okay, so you get this bubble bath battle where the the COVID is like, yeah, like melting, ah, not so. So then it's not weird when like mom is all of a sudden washing your hands like eight times a day, right? They understand that soap is defeating the virus. And if we wanna get back to seeing our friends, we've gotta defeat the virus. So soap is part of that, right? Like, and you know, um, like, um, oh, one of my favorites is like, um, just like mail can only be delivered by a snail, if no one passes it, then the virus will fail, right? So the virus isn't just coming and like banging on your door, right? It has to be carried, right? And, you know, critters don't want to become carriers, so they wear masks as barriers, right? And so you give kids just an easy explanation, like we're putting this on, I don't want to become a carrier, right? Because if I'm a carrier, then I could pass the virus. The virus can't do anything, right? If no one carries it, then the virus will fail, right? And so, you know, just like, just like mail can only be delivered by a snail, if no one carries it, then the virus will fail. So if we don't have that, right, and we can wear masks to prevent you from being a carrier, right, then it makes sense to kids. And then they're like, oh, okay. Then you picture the kids like, put on your mask, right? Yeah. Mom, put on your mask. Yeah. And, you know, that was kind of it. So the book ends with, you know, the frontline workers are the ant army. Right. And this is important, right? Because a lot of the bugs are told to stay inside, but you know, some of them have to be out and working and those are the frontline workers. So they are the ant army, you know, and they are a part of the fight to do what's right and defeat the invisible enemy. Um, and we have like Dr. Ant and chef ant and you can see them as they walk by. Um, they're all very different. Um, and you'll see they, they kind of look like squiggles so that any kid could draw an ant for the ant army. Yeah. Um, I then could draw I, that. Yeah. A yeah. And they, endorsement. you know, and they all want to be a part of the solution. So, you know, Ladybug calls all her bug friends on the phone um, because they have to stay home, but they want to help. And so they come up with a plan to support the ant army. Um, and everybody has a part like busy delivers by touchless delivery. Um, spider stops spinning webs and starts making masks instead. Um, the fireflies give them light to work by. Um, and then at the end, they essentially, um, join the ant army and Sargent puts out the call to action, right? To join the infantry. Right. So it's your call to action, put on your mask with me and be a part of the ant army so that whether it's a parent or an educator or someone can remind the kids like, hey, come on, like, let's put a mask on. Let's be a part of the ant army. And you're a part of the solution. And that's what we want them to see. You're not helpless. You can actually be a part of the solution. And, you know, I, I lovingly joke that, you know, Sergeant is is Governor Cuomo. Um, because whether he said it officially wearing a mask says, I love you, I still swear he did. Um, but somebody, look, the USA Today um, actually 
picked up that I had put, that we put him in the dedication and you know, they looked at the transcription and it was like kind of close to that. But in my mind, he said it directly. Um, so I always joke and say that Sargent is Governor Cuomo. Um, I love it. He, you know, he leads the ant army, but. You know. uh, Dr. Jen, I am so excited to recommend these books to all of the parents that I know, because I know parents are struggling more than a lot of us right now. But before we wrap up, I want to make sure I ask you, the last question that we ask everyone who comes on our podcast and you've hinted on this a little bit, but tell us about a goal that you have for the future and why it's important to you. And if you have a plan to get there or if you're just going to keep doing what you do and, and let it happen. Um, so yes, we did hint at this a little bit. Um, spoiler alert. Um, one of my goals is to definitely, um, well, it's creating content around women in football. Um, you know, I definitely want my story to be part of that. Um, but I think it's so important for the girls to see it. Right. Um, and I really learned about the importance of that, um, you know, seeing it and working with Madden, um, and becoming their first female coach in that. And the response that girls had, uh, was so powerful and boys too. Right. Like I always say, it's like girls get to see it and imagine that she can be it. And for boys, then they see it's, it's normal. Yeah. Right. I have friends that are like, my friend, my, my kids don't actually know that you were the first female coach in the NFL, but they certainly all know you from Madden. And I laugh because I'm like, and yet they get to see that a girl could be a coach and yeah, a representation, matters. right. Representation matters. And so for me, that's why, um, you know, being able to like do a documentary, um, and a movie is so important. Yeah, um, the visuals. Yeah, it's the visuals. And I want, you know, I've had such different experiences in the world. And ones that have, you know, pushed me beyond what I thought I could do. You know, like playing on the men's team to me was one of, if not the most important um, times in my life in terms of changing the course of my life. Because first of all, I was always outspoken about the fact that I would never play football against men. I was not crazy. Apparently, you know, God doesn't like never or crazy. Um, and I ended up doing it not because I thought I could, could beat the boys or even necessarily that I was sure I would survive. Um, but I did it because I refused to be used as a publicity stunt. And yet playing on that team made me a better person. And the guys on that team said the same. They're like, man, that, that season changed everything for me. And it taught me how to be a great teammate with them. And it also taught me how, you know, to me, the battle for, you know, gender equality or equality of any kind really isn't just women for women. It's, men and women learning how we can be better allies to each other because those guys taught me so much and they became my greatest advocates. And, you know, me advancing into quote unquote, the ultimate boys club or whatever you say, well, you know, all of the biggest moments that I had that were, you know, history making or whatever, um, happened because men believed in me. And it's not that women necessarily didn't because 
obviously the women that I know and love have been great support systems, right? And I, I do what I do for the women in football, but they weren't in a position to do it. And so there were only men in those conversations and places. So I think telling those stories is a way that we can really show how culture can be shifted um, in a powerful way, because I don't think there are enough examples of, you know, really kind of the odd couples doing amazing things, right? Like I was the last woman in the world who should have played men's pro football. I was too small, too female, and too old. I was 37 years old when I played men's pro football, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Dudes are retired. Yeah. I mean, I have no secrets anymore. My height, weight, and, you know, obviously gender um, and age have been international news. Um, but my goals to do it, I'm not sure. Like, it, it, it's hard because part of the reason I moved out here was to be able to, um, you know, have more of those conversations and make those connections and, you know, hopefully take meetings and meet people. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, I'm really good at meeting people and, and doing those things. And now the world shut down. So it's a little weirder. And yet um, I think that being coachable and open to the conversations and, you know, really doing my best to connect with people and make that known. I think it will be a logical extension. Um, I think one of the hardest things for me was, um, and, and you know, this is important about goals, especially the big ones, is that sometimes when you think you're on the right track, you're not. And I actually had a rights deal in place um, after my book. Um, I probably signed it too quickly. Um, because when we went to write the movie, they, they weren't on the same page with the story that I thought needed to be told. Um, and, you know, I think that there's so much that's happened that's really true and really represents people in um, such a wonderful light because I've gotten support from places that you wouldn't expect. And, and they were really taking the story and writing it how they thought it should be. Um, and it became a lot of fiction. And I know every movie needs, you know, every story has storytelling mechanisms and some of those things that, you know, become shortened or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when I wrote it or when I read like their first draft, I cried because it, it was so fake and it didn't honor, um, you know, like how amazing the guys were. They kind of wanted to make them all like stereotypical jerks. And I was like, this not only doesn't, like, why? Right? Like, why would we do that? And so I actually had to wait um, and let the rights deal expire um, to get out of it to, to do it. And for me, who's wanted to tell this story and do it in a really, you know, awesome way, for a long time to have to let two years pass because I, I thought it was just BS the way they wanted to tell the story was painful. And so, you know, it just expired in November, which is part of the reason why I moved out here now. And then it's like, Oh, and then COVID. <laughs> and then COVID that, that is a, a good place to end things. Although we know that, 
it's going to get a little bit better every single day. But Dr. Jen, you've been amazing and you've earned a minute of shameless self-promotion on the <laughs> podcast. So tell us uh, where we can find you on the internet, on social media, where we can buy your books and anywhere else we can keep up with what you're working on. Yes. Um, so my website is really complicated. Not at all. It's jenwelter.com. Um, I am, and I, this is the athlete code in case you didn't know. And Welter 47. So like last name and football number, yes. right. Um, yeah. on Instagram, it's jwelter 47 on Twitter. Um, I think it's also welter 47 on LinkedIn, um, which I do a lot of stuff on there. Um, nice. and then the books were actually self-published. Um, and this is probably a, a, an important thing for you all to know. Um, I had a publisher that kind of wanted to do them. He loved like the first two books. And he was like, yeah, I could probably get them out in a year. I hope these books are irrelevant in a year. I hope that they matter not. And they are, you know, balancing somebody's coffee table. So I, I lovingly refer to that guy as Dinosaur Dan now. Um, because that's clearly why publishing struggles. So it sounds for, like a critter fitter character. Right. But for any of you who feel like you have a message that you want to get out there and like there may not be a, a quote unquote publisher for you, you can do it yourself on Amazon. And the beauty of that is like, I never see the inventory. If you order it through Amazon, they print it and will send it. So don't feel like your message is too hard to get out there. We were able to do it fast um, on Amazon. So you can prime it, you can get your book on Amazon. It is available to anyone. Um, but we are looking for people who want to help and get the books out there in bigger ways because that is what we haven't figured out yet. Um, and, and I certainly am learning, but I'm not an expert in getting books out there. Um, but that is how you can find the books. Um, and just, you know, it, it's a lot about being brave and not being scared because, you know, we self-published books out there and, you know, it could have been that the worst case scenario was that one person would read it. Thankfully, we're, we're well past that now. Um, but I, you know, I think it's really important for all of us right now to find the way in which you feel like you can be a proactive part of the solution for people right now. And when you're having a bad day and we're all, we are all part of that, think of someone else that you can help. And it might just be, you know, shooting a text message or a call to somebody that you haven't talked to in a while to just check on them and make sure you're okay. Because psychological momentum is really powerful. Um, and you don't always have to be moving in the way that you think that you should be. Um, this is a weird time. So be your own best friend and be good to the other people around you because we all need that right now. And I, I know I certainly do. And so for all of you listening, I, I really just hope um, that this, this gives you a little bit of courage and joy um, and I know that I am thankful for you being a positive light to all these people because we need it now more than ever. Um, and, and I love that you've got goals, right? I, I, I was in love with the outreach the second I got it. I was like, yeah, we got goals. Yeah, like let's do this. And anybody who wants to tune in to We Got Goals, I already know we got a lot in common. So thank you for helping us 
um, and helping to get the word out there and being such a, a positive, fearless force of good in this world. Well, thank you, Dr. Jen, for being on the We Got Goals podcast. And we had a blast talking to you. Absolutely. Anytime. <laughs>